ignition sequence start. Five. Everything. Three. Everything. Sounds. Sounds. This is Everything Sounds. Before we get into this episode, Craig and I want to acknowledge the 10-month hiatus that we've taken from producing Everything Sounds. A lot's happened, and we've put the show in the back burner to make room for, well, frankly, our lives. Quite a bit has happened. We're now both engaged to wonderful women, we've accepted full-time jobs in our cities, and a shorter version of our episode from last December that we produced for Rivet Radio, The Story of Marvin the Greeter, won a National Edward R. Murrow Award, which George accepted in New York. We've hated putting the show off for so long, and we want to get back into it, but at the same time, we don't want to make any promises just in case we can't fulfill them. Before, Craig and I had a lot of free time, so making the show was easier. Now, most times when I get off of work, Craig is just starting, so our schedules aren't conducive for a weekly or even a bi-weekly show. But we're back with this one, and when we're ready to release a new episode, we'll put it out. We just don't want to push out an episode just so that it's out in the world. We want to do research. We want to make sure that it sounds how we want it to. And we want to get something to you that we're proud of and that you'll enjoy. Even if it takes a month, two, or six, we don't want you to remove us from your feeds. We're still here. All right. How about we do this for real? You ready? Yep. Okay. Take it away. I'm Craig Shank. I'm George Drake Jr. And this is Everything Sounds. (laughs) Wow. Uh, it, it was very, very challenging to try to write this book, um, and, um, uh, uh, um, and, uh, so, uh, it's something we all do, even if we don't mean to, um, uh, er, whatever sound comes out, they can all be called one thing. Uh, and um is part of a larger class of phenomena, which we'll just call disfluencies, which is not really fair to them. Other people have other names for them. Discourse markers, um, things like discourse particles, things like that. Uh, but I'll just, just stay with disfluencies. That's Michael Arard. And I'm a writer and linguist. He wrote a book called Um, Slips, Stumbles, and Verbal Blunders, and What They Mean. He'll be the first to tell you that even though he wrote the book on the subject, he's still not perfect. I'm not the fastest talker in the world, and I definitely like to use my share of uhs and ums as well. And, you know, I'm a non-clinical, you know, not, I have no neurological disorder, not one that I know about anyway. He told us that people have removed his ums and uhs in pre-recorded radio interviews. We thought that's kind of ridiculous considering that it's the subject we're talking about, so we made a promise to him to leave everything as it is, to which he said... Oh great, so you're gonna just make me sound unvarnished. For the record, he doesn't sound unvarnished, he sounds human. Michael fell into linguistics after college, but his interest in the verbal blunders side of communication came when he was living in Texas. At the same time, George W. Bush became a presidential candidate. And almost immediately after one of his first uh, press conferences was just roundly mocked for his verbal blundering, for his malapropisms. And that became 
you know, a, an essential part of his public persona. And people were saying things about him, uh, you know, in terms of he's an abnormal speaker, he's, um, you know, he's stupid, he's, you know, all of these things. And living in Texas, I knew that when he was governor, he, he didn't have that kind of reputation. So I got interested in a number of questions, one of which is, well, what is a normal speaker? Um, how many uh, malapropisms and other slips of the tongue and how much disfluency is normal for kind of a non-clinical population. So he started researching how people in our culture perceive non-fluency or when people stumble, kind of like George W. Bush did during his candidacy. He wanted to figure out where that expectation of fluency came from and how far back does it go? So, uh, you know, the book took me from Cicero to Freud to George W. Bush, I guess is a pretty good uh, sense of, of the span of it. While disfluencies like um and uh are the most common, they aren't the only ways that people can stumble. So along with uh and um, you have restarted sentences, you have repeated words, you have silent pauses, you have elongated vowels, you have uh, repeated syllables as well. So there's a whole class of phenomena that happen because we, can't, we, we find it very difficult to plan what we're going to say and say it simultaneously. So we have to switch back and forth. So we plan, then we speak, then we plan, then we speak. And these are happening, happening in very short cycles, you know, that are measured in um, hundreds of milliseconds. Consider this. While it seems like there's a break in what you're saying, there actually isn't a break in your brain. That um, pause, or elongated word is your brain still firing and making decisions on what to say next. You know, these delays or hesitations or interruptions, we vocalize them. We're giving the listener some sense of what our internal state is. So we're trying to communicate to the listener, uh, we're headed in a new direction, we are having some issues with coming up with the right words. We might be headed off in a different direction. Don't give up on us. Keep listening. Um, don't, uh, don't think that all is lost. You know, um, so it's a little bit of a meta commentary on what's going on in our heads. While they're actually signs of your brain's thought process, they're still looked down on. And oddly enough, that's because of radio. In print, you can stumble as much as you want, you don't even have to say words, and the writer will just throw in an ellipsis or a set of brackets to fill in your blanks. But everything in radio is heard, including those disfluencies. So they were quickly seen as unnecessary and thought to have no informational value at all for the listener. In turn, the people on air removed them completely. But Michael says it's a problem to give them that stigma. The public speaking, the public presentation types, they kind of fetishize the umless. They fetishize umlessness uh, and talk about how umlessness is somehow uh, uh, intrinsically better than more than than quote unquote disfluent, you know, normal disfluent speaking, and and that's just really not true. Andy's right. There's a group called Toastmasters, and they pride themselves on improving public speaking and leadership skills. 
They focus on everything from inflection, hand gestures, pacing, and the total removal of disfluencies. Hello, I'm Jay. Thanks for visiting Toastmasters International to learn more about public speaking. But if you listen to Toastmasters, even in casual conversation, and I have you know a bunch of friends who are Toastmasters and met people in the course of doing the book, they are in fact omelets, but they're not perfectly fluent. So, you know, because they have the same brains that everybody else did, their Toastmaster training did not suddenly grant them, you know, a brain that was somehow brilliantly able to extemporize perfectly fluently. So, 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 so they do things like that, or they, or they, they'll go back and, well, and they'll sort of start all over again. You know, they pick up a lot of other behaviors that allow them to plan. So yes, they are not saying ah oh, and um, but no, that doesn't make you uh, perfectly fluent. Now here's what I find interesting. As Michael says, Toastmasters are basically umless, and they go out of their way to make it seem like their train of thought hasn't been broken. But in the five-minute video that we played a clip from, there were over 30 obvious edits, which means that the Toastmaster didn't do it in one take, which I think seems odd, given that they designate people to count the disfluencies at their meeting. But that's just me. Craig, what do you think? I just hope a Toastmaster never listens to our show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. When you listen to the video, there's one part where he's doing a list, and every single item is its own cut. Are you sure they'll have a screen? There's an edit. Or have you been placed in an outdoor amphitheater with too much sun for anyone to see the screen? Edit. What about audience size? That's an edit. Will a sound system be available if you need it? That's an edit. All these questions are important to answer before you take the stage. See what I mean? <laughs> Toastmasters aside, Michael says the best way to think of disfluencies is to compare them to architecture. You can say that a window is a hole in the wall, um, or it's like a lack of a wall. Or you can say that a window is part of the wall that includes it, and the, uh, and the um are really more that second sense, that they are an intrinsic part of language and the way that we produce it. In that view shared by Katie Gore, she's a speech pathologist at Speech IRL in Chicago. That stands for speech in real life. I would say, though, for the vast majority of cases, what makes people fun to listen to is that they are not quite totally perfect and they do have some imperfections. And the danger with um is if you obsess over it, if you obsess over cleaning it out, and if you obsess over any feature of your speech, really, you will become focused on that when you're talking and you won't become focused on your listener, you won't become focused on the message, and you're going to lose the heart and soul of your communication. We gave Katie a hypothetical. If someone came in, slapped down the money to pay for her help and said, help me get rid of my ums and uhs, how does she go about doing that? So the first thing I always say is we're never going to completely get rid of them because they're there and they do serve a purpose. And part of getting rid of them is being okay with having a small amount of them and not becoming totally derailed every time you notice that you have one. So the typical process that I do with someone, and usually if they come in and they're like, oh, I want to get rid of my ums, there's usually a couple other communication behaviors that can use some addressing as well, and it's part of a whole. So I usually have them come in, and depending on why they want to get rid of it, so, oh, I have to present a lot for work, and I really struggle in these presentations, or I have to make a lot of sales calls, some people feel much more comfortable 
when they are very well prepared. So if there's a deck and it's very scripted what they have to present, other people are more comfortable doing spontaneous stuff and they get really nervous when they're forced to stay in a script. And for people who just say, well, you know, it's just, it's, it's fine if I'm comfortable and I get really nervous, then I try to make them nervous. So I always like to joke with my clients that I'm really good at making people uncomfortable. So I will take on a persona of a very difficult person to talk to, or we have in the building that we're in, as you saw, we have a lot of different sizes of spaces. So I might take them to a much larger space, a conference room space and have them stand up. And for some people, just standing up in front of a big empty room, even if there's no audience there, is enough to trigger that nervousness that might cause the ums to come out more. As a whole, the way people view disfluencies has changed. They've started to become accepted once again in radio and TV, and many times they're just overlooked. But at the same time, the ways in which we communicate have changed as well. Now you can just text someone instead of actually talking to them on the phone, and that eliminates the need for disfluencies at all. Katie says she thinks that people's views will change even more, but it'll take a while. Generally, as a culture, we're becoming more open to the idea of communicating in a variety of ways and so some of those really rigid beliefs around how speech should sound and how it should be constructed are slowly loosening up but I think it's maybe a good sample of the the stark change that's happening or maybe we're just more aware of the fact that hey we have been very prescriptivist about how we speak for a really long time and Is that really fair to people? What's the point of that even? Like, why have we decided that talking in this way is better and talking in this way is worse? So I think we're just starting now to have more awareness of the fact that there are a lot of these little features that people have done in speech all the time that we just haven't paid attention to before. And then some time ago, people started paying attention to them and saying, oh, they're bad. And now we're questioning that finally. And some of that, I wonder if it's even sort of corresponds to things like physical beauty. Like we all know we're not supposed to judge people based on their appearance, but we do it anyway. But maybe we can teach ourselves to catch ourselves if we're doing that. And can that be the same for speech too? But that I think will take a long time. And as for Michael, he only has one tip when it comes to using ah and um. Just keep using them. In some ways the uhs are the um, you know, we need those because um, they're an essential marker of our humanity. Machines can't do them. They can't do them well. So, so we need us and ums to be there, not too much, but to kind of salt and pepper the, the sentences that we speak in order to show that we're human. Um, don't sound like a robot. I mean, the robot's going to steal your job, but that's why, that's why we shouldn't sound like robots. The... He had to. You can find out more about Michael Arard and his book, Um, Slips, Stumbles, and Verbal Blunders, and What They Mean, as well as Katie Gore and her company, Speech IRL, that's Speech in Real Life, at everythingsounds.org. There you can also find links to our social media pages Facebook, Tumblr, uh, on Twitter. We're at EvSounds, that's E V Sounds. And we've also uploaded two pictures to Instagram in the past three years. You can check those out as well and like them, give them those hearts at everythingsounds.org. Two pictures. And if you have a minute, go to iTunes and rate and review our show. Small review goes a long way. One more thing. This song that's playing right now is something that I made from one of those times that I worked in radio where I needed to remove the disfluencies from an interview. 
The music I used for this piece and that we used for this entire episode is from Poddington Bear. His website is poddingtonbear.com. Yeah, I mean, I could go on and on on that on that subject. Uh, until next time, I'm Craig Shank. <laughs> and I'm George Drake Jr. Thanks for listening to Everything Sounds.